Uh, if there's any question about that, you can contact Diane. But that uh, is happening at 11 o'clock uh, tomorrow morning. Uh, and I believe that's getting going. But once again, Diane will let you know if that has changed. Uh, on Wednesday morning, we will have our uh, prayer meeting and Bible study. That's at 1030. If you want to be involved in that, uh, let me know. And, and I'll leave your email address. We can uh, get you in on that. We've been having really some really good studies uh, lately. It's been a lot of fun. That's at 1030 on Wednesday morning. And uh, youth uh, is uh, continuing. And we're going to go virtual at least one more week. This week will be virtual. And then uh, we'll kind of play it by ear after that. Uh, as always, if there are last-minute changes, uh, including what happened Sunday, uh, we'll, we'll let you know through the Internet on Facebook or on our, our website. So uh, do check those out because things uh, this day and age change uh, pretty quickly. As far as uh, the Red Cross collection, um, she's, Katie's going to take that uh, after the service, I believe. If you do have anything that you wanted to uh, donate for that, uh, you can let her know. Um, uh, put something on Facebook or something, I guess, and and uh, will so that she can uh, let or so that she can know uh, that you have something for her there. And uh, once again, thank you uh, for uh, your your donations there. And I believe those are the uh, announcements as we have them. So with that, uh, let me read the words uh, from First Chronicles. This is in part of David's song of thanks. And David says this, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice and let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we gather to worship you and we ask that you bless this time of praise and worship, that you may be glorified. And we ask that you will strengthen us in your word, in your truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And with that then, uh, what I will do is give you a few moments uh, to go to the Father in your silent prayer, uh, confessing your sins to him and repenting. Also, uh, for those that are on your prayer list, and, and uh, I give you this time to lift them uh, silently to the Father as well uh, before I start the pastoral prayer. So let's take these few moments and go to the Father in silent prayer. Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks and praise. We adore your holy name. 
We look around and see your hand in all of creation, the stars in the sky, the sun that comes up and sets every day, the rain that falls, and it's all in your hand. Your power is beyond our thoughts. Your love is more than we can imagine. We thank you that you do love us. And we ask that you help us to humbly submit to you. We can get so stuck in our ways and so headstrong in what we want to do that we take our eyes off of the King of Kings, the King of Glory, the one who made all things. And so we do ask that you will give us those eyes that see you and lovingly submit to your will and your way. Help us never be content with our sin, but that we will always oppose our own sin. Help us to see it that we may walk away from it. Help us to abhor it that we may uh, turn and, and walk to your truth we do confess our sins to you and we take great joy in knowing that when we repent, you forgive. And so we do ask through the blood of Jesus Christ that you forgive our sins, that we may be made righteous through his work. Give us the grace to be holy, to be kind and gentle, Give us the grace to be pure and peaceable, to live for you and not for ourselves, to live entirely for your glory. Build us up in your truth with your Holy Spirit. Deliver us from all attachments to things that are unclean from evil desires, from wrong associations. There are so many ways we can go in this world and so many wrong ways, but there is the path that leads to eternal life. And that's through Christ. Help us to always keep that in front of us. We do pray for this nation and this world in the midst of this pandemic, we pray that those who are sick will be healed. We pray, as always, for the effectiveness of these vaccines that are coming out, that they will prevent people from being sick, that we can get this pandemic behind us. We pray for our leaders throughout this, that you will give them wisdom. We pray for their health and their protection give them guidance that they may make the right choices. We pray as always for the healthcare professionals, those doctors and nurses and others that are putting themselves on the front lines and, and helping people through this. And, and with that, uh, that virus out there, uh, they, are, they are in danger. So we lift them up to you and ask that you will keep them healthy and safe. We pray for those who are suffering financially uh, through this, and we know of many who are. We ask that you will provide for them, that, 
that your people will be able to, to see the need and respond accordingly, that you may get the praise. We do pray for the, all of those who are lost in their sin, that your Holy Spirit will speak to their hearts and that they will come to know the truth and that they can be snatched from the fire and brought into your glorious kingdom. And we do pray for the purity of your church, Heavenly Father, that you will give us eyes to see your truth, that your spirit within us, keeping us pure, keeping us holy, and keeping us uh, bold in the midst of everything that's going on, that we may be humble, loving, and yet very effective in doing your will, that your truth may be seen. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. And then what I will have you do is turn to John chapter 3, if you have your Bibles with you. And we will be reading verses 16 through 36. And uh, we're going with an assumption that I made last week, and it's not, uh, not that big of a thing, but the assumption I made last week was that Jesus is still speaking. We left as Jesus was speaking, and uh, some translations of the Bible, just a couple actually, actually end Jesus' talking at verse 15, and then they use verse 16 as a somewhat of a, of a transition, or that this is John summarizing what Jesus said. Now, most translations uh, go with the idea that Jesus is continuing to speak, but either way, we're building on uh, what has been said. And uh, Jesus is talking with Nicodemus, and, and he mentions in verses 14 and 15, as Moses was uh, lifted up the serpent uh, in the wilderness, and that's a reference to Numbers chapter 21, uh, where there were vipers and, and uh, there was a serpent that they made, a bronze serpent, and if you looked at him, uh, they would be healed uh, rather than die. And so it's a reference to that. Jesus is saying, as uh, Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And so we're picking up on that idea. Jesus uh, continues on uh, with that idea. And so let me read then John chapter 3, beginning at verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For, the son, or for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may clearly be seen that his works have been carried out in God. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, 
and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Aenon near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son, and he has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you will speak into our hearts your truth, your gospel as it is so clearly laid out for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as uh, we look at this passage, it starts with perhaps the most famous verse in Scripture. It's uh, the almost universally memorized by Christians around the world, John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And it's usually one of the first verses you memorize. And... When you, you look at it, uh, you can uh, see, as the Puritan uh, Thomas Manton says, in these words you have the sum and substance of the gospel. This is what it is. And so I'll, I'll tell you right up front, when you start with a passage like this, and, and, and you reverse like this, and, and you have this kind of passage, uh, what you're going to hear is the gospel. Pure and simple gospel. That's what springs from this. And when we see it, we see that, uh, that the first cause of salvation, how this all gets started, is these first few words, for God so loved. We have salvation because God loves. It's at the beginning of everything. God so loved. And it reads, God so loved world. And you'll see that word world mentioned a few times. And this is somewhat atypical for John to write in the world or of the world uh, in this way. But it stands out. And, and he does so purposefully, I believe, that it does stand out. 
because there's a couple of things going on, and, and one of the things that will come up later on in the book of John is that God loves outside the people of Israel. That was really the Old Testament idea. You, God's people were Israel, and if you wanted to be among God's people, you, you had to become a part of Israel. But John, is, and it will be expanded a little later, he, God loves the world. He loves all people in the world. Race, nationality, gender, none of that is, is a barrier. God loves. And that's part of what he's saying, which to the people of Israel would have been a little surprising, but even more so, he's saying not only does God love people all around the world, but God loves this world, the people in this world, even though the world is so wicked. And that's really what he'll pick up on as we look at this passage. In fact, later on, John writes in 1 John chapter 5, the whole world lives in the power of the evil one. And what he wants us to see is God's uh, love is to be admired not only because the world is so big and there's so many people, but because the world is so bad and yet God still loves his people in this world. And he picks up on this, this light and, and dark motif as, as he goes, goes into it. But, but there's this idea when you look at it that God loves this, this world and, and it's condemned already. Notice that in, in verse 18. If you don't believe in the Son, you're, you're already condemned. And that goes all the way back to Adam. When Adam and Eve sinned, then this world was brought into judgment and condemned. I think a lot of people have this idea of, of you're born and there's a clean slate, almost like starting a game and the score is zero to zero and, and you try to get more good than bad and, and somehow that's going to uh, make you win. But it's not that way. Your very first breath in this world, you're in a world that is condemned. And you're born a sinner. That's sin nature, and that goes all the way back to Adam. You're born into this wicked world, and from the very beginning, you need a Savior. And we see that in John 17. That God, or I should say 3.17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn, but in order that some might be saved through him. Now, he will come. Jesus will come again to judge the world, but the world is already condemned. We know what that judgment is, but he came to save this, this son of God, the Son of Man, who John is, is writing about and wants us to know. It's the only Son. Some translations put it the only begotten Son, or some the one and only Son. They're trying to hit on this idea of what John is getting at. This is the unique, one-of-a-kind Son of God who can save. It's the Son of Promise. And he says, uh, and then he talks about some 
are not going to come into the light. It's this light and, and dark in verses 19 through 21. And we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about that because Jesus later on in chapter 8 is going to give the great, I am the light of the world. And we'll spend a little more time on talking about the light of the world then. But I do want us to notice something here that John writes. If you look towards the end of verse 20 and compare that to the end of verse 21, you'll see this big difference. The, the, the people in 20, the, the, the people who do the wicked things and, and they hate the light and, and they don't come to the light lest his works should be exposed as opposed to the one who does come to the light in verse 21, that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The one not coming to the light doesn't want the works to be seen, but the one in the light comes because he wants those to see what God has done. Uh, D.A. Carson writes this, the lover of darkness shuns the light out of fear of exposure, shame, and conviction. The lover of light does not prance forward to parade his wares with self-righteousness, but he comes that his that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And Carson continues, this strange expression makes it clear that the lover of light is not some intrinsically superior person. If he or she enjoys light, it is because all that has been performed for which there is no shame or conviction has been done through God. And John wants us to see that, that uh, not only do we see the reality of God's love, but we see the greatness of God's love. This world is condemned, and there's that warning in there that he gives us, but Christ can save, and Christ will save some. And then uh, John, uh, the evangelist here, the, the writer of this gospel, he transitions and, and it gives us uh, a, a, a glimpse, if you will, uh, a highlight of, of the greatness of God. And he does it through uh, John the Baptist as he uh, gives us this next uh, account then, talking about the greatness of Christ and, and the purification that there is in Christ. And, and let me just uh, summarize some of uh, what's going on here. What we have in verses uh, 22 and and to the end of the ver or end of the chapter is we have Jesus. We see Jesus and his disciples in the Judean countryside, and uh, they're baptizing. Now it should be noted uh, if you look at chapter four, verse two, uh, that Jesus himself wasn't baptizing, but his disciples were. And John just wanted to clear that up. But uh, Jesus is there and his disciples, and and they are baptizing. And then also there's John the Baptist now as well. And this always makes it a little confusing when we have the writer of, of the book of John uh, and writing about John the Baptist. But here's John the Baptist, and he's also baptizing. And they're a little ways away from each other. We don't know exactly where they are, but, but they're close enough that they know what each other is doing. And then uh, enters another person, and it's someone, it's, it's a Jew. That's all he's uh, identified as. Uh, a Jew, and he's talking about uh, purification. 
So we have these, these things going on. And John gives us the note, by the way, in verse 24, uh, John had not yet been put in prison. And uh, you would probably read that and think, well, duh, he's out baptizing. Why is John telling us this? But John has actually given us a really good hint that what's happening is, is um, very early in Jesus's ministry here. Uh, all the other gospels, they start and John the Baptist is arrested almost immediately and, and put in prison. But here uh, the writer is telling us, well, this is before all of that, very early in Jesus's ministry. And, and so uh, this Jew, and as uh, John writes about him uh, and uses that word Jew, we can assume, I think fairly safely, uh, we have a religious leader, maybe someone from the Sanhedrin or a Pharisee or some, someone like that. And there's this discussion about purification. And the disciples hear this and they go back to John the Baptist and they start talking about baptism. And then not only that, but almost complaining, if you will, about Jesus baptizing. And, and so how does all this fit together? How do we get from purification to complaining about Jesus baptizing more people than John the Baptist? Well, let's, let's try to put this uh, all together. First thing uh, that we have to note is uh, what John the Baptist was saying. And we see it a lot in some of the other Gospels. In fact, let me just read Mark uh, verse one or, or chapter one, verse four, uh, where Mark writes, John appeared, that's John the Baptist, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, repenting and being purified, if you will. Earlier in the book of John, back in chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist looked at Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Purification takes away the sin of the world. So the real point at issue here is the authority of Jesus to overturn, if you will, the system of ritual purification within Judaism. And this was hinted at back in chapter 2. If you uh, go back to chapter 2, verse 6, when Jesus turned the water into wine, and, and notice what he used there. There were six stone uh, jar, water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, and Jesus turned that into wine and how that tied in. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, how that tied in to Isaiah when he wrote about the new wine of salvation, the good wine. And, and so John gave us this hint already that Jesus is kind of turning this whole purification thing upside down. He's changing it, and that's the issue here. This, this Jewish leader, he knows what John the Baptist is saying about Jesus and purification. But notice uh, John the Baptist's disciples come to him, and, and in verse 26 they say, Rabbi, uh, he who is with you across the Jordan, and that's Jesus, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. You can sense a little resentment almost in what they're saying. Look, we started this baptism thing. Now look what's happening. They're going to him. And, and of course, whenever you're threatened, you like to exaggerate things. Look, everyone's going to him. Although it clearly says that John the Baptist is also baptizing. But, but it's just almost this idea of, well, what's going on? 
this is our deal. And you point to him, and now everyone's going to him. If they'd have thought about what they were saying for a minute, maybe they'd have come to the right conclusion. But, but there's almost this, this uh, fear of, of the durability uh, of their ministry. If you were to put it in today's vernacular, uh, we'd probably call it relevance. Hey, John, are we relevant anymore? Maybe we need a band with some popping music here, and that'll get the people, and we got to dress you up a little better. This camel hair and leather belt, John, that is so BC. You know, we got to get you up to date. We got to be relevant. But John the Baptist's answer is wonderful. John answered, verse 27, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven, and you yourselves... Uh, bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ. I'm just the one that coming before him. You see, John knows and understands his role. If, if he wanted to serve in a, a more prominent way than what God has given him to serve, uh, it would just be covetousness, really, under another name. Uh, and, and think about uh, what the disciples are saying. If, if John is going to be uh, envious of the Messiah, well, well, that's just idolatry. But what John understands is that he has been given this excellent ministry by God. And that is to get people to Christ. And that's what it was all about. And John understands that. And he, he's happy in his role, even though his role is uh, to his disciples is diminishing. Uh, Matthew chapter 11, uh, in verse 11, Jesus is talking about John the Baptist and, and tells his disciples, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. He knew his role. And when people left him to follow Christ, he was happy about it. And there's this, uh, this uh, idea of the bridegroom here that, that comes in, that John the Baptist brings up. And it's really kind of a, a, a neat uh, idea. Uh, now, certainly, John knows the Old Testament passages that depict Israel, at least faithful Israel, as the bride of Yahweh, the bride of, of the Lord. And then that gets carried into the New Testament uh, and expanded in the New Testament, but even in the Old Testament, you'll find it in, in Isaiah and Jeremiah, uh, Hosea, and, and there's other places as well. And certainly John knew those uh, passages, but in, in the uh, ancient Near East, uh, as, as John is saying this, uh, the, the, the best man, we'd call him the best man, or the, bridegroom, the bridegroom's friend, uh, he had actually a big role in the ceremony. The, the groom, the bridegroom was in charge of making sure uh, everything was provided for, but, but it was up to the best man to make sure that it all got carried out then. And he had a kind of a big role. And, and so when the ceremony would happen in these weddings and everything was rolling along smoothly, the best man was pretty happy because it's all going along and there's no hitch here and, and everybody's looking at the bridegroom and the, and the bride and, and that's how it is supposed to be and, and that would give him a joy and, and 
you know, John says, the, the joy of mine is, is, is now complete because uh, my God-given mission is, is successful. It's like the best man at a wedding. When, when it all is successful, he's happy. When the people are going to Christ, I'm happy. That's my joy. That's why I'm here. And there's another really kind of neat idea uh, behind this idea of the, uh, the best man. And uh, it's uh, uh, good evidence that in ancient Samaria and, and, and Babylon, and uh, even among the Philistines, a law that the best man was absolutely prohibited from marrying the bride. And, and for that, this is a side note, by the way, this is one of these things I just get carried away with and I really enjoy looking at. But to look at that, if you go to Judges, the book of Judges in the Old Testament, and, and we can get a glimpse of this from the, uh, from the Philistines here. And what, what happened, this is a story about Samson, and, and Samson is gonna marry this bride, or he does, and, and he shouldn't have anyhow, but that doesn't matter right now. But I, but he gets angry because he gives this quiz or a riddle and, and nobody can figure it out. And, and there's kind of a big wager here and, and his wife gets it out of him what the answer is. And then she tells other people and then he gets all angry and has to kill a whole bunch of people so he can pay off his debt. And, and then at the end of chapter 14, it says, and Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. All right, so, so you see that? So the wife is given to the best man, and then when you go to chapter 15, um, Samson is coming to the father, and he says, where's my wife? And in verse 2, the father said, well, I thought you hated her, so I gave her to your companion, the best man, and then he tries to get off the hook. He says, look, the, the younger sister is way better looking. Anyhow, come take her. Uh, and, and so she's better anyhow, so, so take her. And, and then Samson in verse 3 says, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. You can see what Samson's saying there. Look, that guy gave my wife to my best man. He's guilty. I'm completely justified in what I'm going to do here. And the Philistines even back him up on that. When you look at verse 6, the Philistines said, Well, who has done this? Because now... Uh, Samson has torched all their fields and, and uh, burned things down. And, and the Philistines, well, who's done this? And they said, well, Samson, the son-in-law of the, of the Timnite, because, the, son, or because the, the father has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. Their acknowledgement that he should have never done that. You don't give the bride to the best man. And when you kind of take that thought into what John is saying here, he said, I'm the best man. That bride is not mine. That is Christ's. It's all about Christ. It's all about him. I can't assume the bride is here for my purpose. And in Christianity, we've seen down through history, and we have to be very careful about it even today, if we try to make Christianity or our faith something more than worshiping God and making disciples, if we try to make it about us 
We have no right to do that. None at all. It's all about Christ. Everything in our faith is to get people to Christ. And John the Baptist, he understood that because he knows that's the only way to salvation. And so he sends them there. He must increase, as John the Baptist says in verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. And then the last few verses here are uh, somewhat of a summary of what John has been writing about in this chapter, but also uh, somewhat of a setup for what's coming. And so some of this we will uh, take on a, a little bit later on in the chapter, but he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven uh, is, is above all. And, and we'll pick that up in chapter 6, actually, when, when this becomes uh, a discussion again. But, but I do like verse 33, and I just want to spend a little time there. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. And the argument that, that's being made here by John as, as he writes this is that we should honor God in, in all that we do as a solemn acknowledgement of his truth. The, the, it, it's a reference to the Old Testament kings that would with their seal, their sign and seal on a document. And when they did that, there was no changing it. That meant that this, this is how it is. This is how it's going to be and that we need to put our seal uh, on this. And, and uh, Thomas Manton, the Puritan, uh, he writes uh, this, and he writes in some Puritan type talk, but let me just uh, quote Thomas Manton. God's truth is the same in itself and needeth not our confirmation, but he will put his honor upon us that we should, as far as we can, honor his truth by our subscription. It is our honor that our testimony is taken in so great a matter. God is true, though every man be a liar. And that's uh, Romans. And, and Manton continues, but our sealing is of great use and profit both to ourselves and to others. To walk in that truth is profitable, and I will even add to what Manton says there, it's necessary, absolutely necessary, because of how this passage ends in verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It's a very fitting climax to this chapter because you see the two alternatives there. There's the genuine faith, obedience, putting your seal on God's truth, or defiant disobedience. Uh, D.A. Carson, again, if faith in the Son is the only way to inherit eternal life and is commanded by God himself, then failure to trust him is as much disobedience as unbelief. 
and that judgment uh, that was threatened earlier uh, back in verses 19 and, and 20. Uh, alarmingly explicit right here. The wrath of God remains on him. And I want us to see something here. I want us to see the very beginning of this passage and the very end. When John, when I started this, John 3.16, for God so loved, and as we end the passage here, we see, but the wrath of God. John is not contradicting himself here. But John is giving us the whole, the cold, hard truth. We have these two choices. There is the love of God and is found through Christ, believing in him. But this world is condemned in which we live. And it is the son who will save us from this world, that we not perish but have eternal life. It's the gospel, pure and simple. That's what this passage is all about. John lays it out for us. Two choices, wrath or love. And that love is found only in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your great love. We see clear evidence around us. This world is wicked. You don't have to uh, even show us how wicked uh, we can be sometimes. We know all too well our own wickedness. But your love is so great and so amazing that you will save us from this world. Even though we're born sinners, and we walk down bad paths now and then. We, we can turn to you, obey you, and find our forgiveness in you. We thank you for the gospel in all its simplicity. And we ask that you help us live our lives, that those around us may not see us or the works we do, but can see you and your love in all that you do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And our benediction then comes from the book of 2 Timothy. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. To God be the glory forever and ever. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.